Welcome back, warriors. Tanse Sego Ani Buju, Queen Inda Luizi Pampometer, and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, and practices. Today I want to talk to you about a growing trend that I believe amounts to a new wave of native dispossession. Settlers who appropriate native identities. There has been an alarming increase in the number of settlers who either appropriate native identity for their own purposes or to disentitle others. I see them in three main categories. The first is the kind of mystical, new agey way to identity shop. So non-native settlers who look for ancestors online to give them a shopping bag of identities that they can pull out whenever there's a holiday, like a French holiday, an Irish holiday, or a native one. The other way is in a more opportunistic way, in an attempt to receive what they perceive as benefits, like government or academic jobs, research funds, or scholarships all targeted for native people. Then there are those, like white rights groups, who appropriate identities, especially Métis identities, for the purpose of stopping real Native groups from signing agreements or accessing their Native rights. And this is a form of dispossession because it, when you make everyone Indigenous, no one is Indigenous. It effectively erases our identity. And this has direct links to you know, historical colonization and dispossession. In the early days of colonization in Turtle Island, settler governments engaged in horrendous acts of genocide in order to specifically clear the land for settlement, the extraction of natural resources, and to um, access our lucrative trade routes. And we've talked about this on other podcasts. But early Colonial officials literally saw Indigenous nations as a real threat to empire building on Turtle Island and designed their policies to focus on the elimination or assimilation of so-called Indians. Some of the more lethal actions included the distribution of blankets infected with smallpox, the enactment of scalping bounties on the heads of Indigenous peoples, the forced sterilizations of Indigenous women and girls, Practices to keep Indians trapped on small reserves where Indian agents could use food rations to starve them into submission. And of course, the torture, rape, medical experimentation, and starvation of Indigenous children in residential schools that literally killed thousands. Colonial governments also used residential schools forced adoptions, and various laws banning ceremonies to try to wipe out our identities, including our languages and cultures and how we viewed ourselves. Yet despite all of the subsequent political apologies and promises to do better by different levels of government, these assimilatory pressures continue in modern-day government policies, and that's part of the problem. We're not just talking about history. If you look at public education, in schools and universities, or mainstream media, or even in societal attitudes towards Native people, you still see a large assimilatory force. 
But today, there's a new wave of colonization and dispossession that is happening under the protective veil of reconciliation. And that's the appropriation of Native identities by non-Native people. And we all know, I mean, there's been like famous instances throughout history of non-Native people who fraudulently took Native identities to further their fame or fortune, either in TV or the movies or politics. But never have we seen like this growing wave of identity appropriation as we have in the last decade or so. Grey Owl was one of the most famous cases of identity appropriation. He was actually born Archibald Stansfield Bellany, uh, born and raised in England, and moved to Canada where he led everyone to believe that he was of Apache ancestry. And that's the first sign when people are actually talking about ancestry as opposed to their actual identity. But he used this fraudulent identity to gain the trust of Native people and use their knowledge that they offered to him to claim as his own, and he became a world-famous public speaker on issues of conservation. And in fact, he fooled everybody, and it wasn't until he passed away that one of his former wives actually exposed his lie. A more recent example would be that of the infamous Joseph Boyden, who engaged in the appropriation of numerous Native identities, which he seemed to use to bolster his fame as a writer, to occupy the space of Native writers that he would never have occupied but for the assertion of Native identities. But his situation was somewhat unique because he appropriated Métis identity, Mi'kmaq identity, Ojibwe, and Nipmuc identity, in so many different places and so many different times that that's actually what led to the reveal of his real identity being exposed. Now, once people caught on that Boyden was claiming to be all of these different kinds of Native people and had been literally occupying the voices and spaces of Native people, Some of his public speaking engagements were cancelled, some professors stopped using his books in their classes, and the media, for the most part, no longer relied on him as a native commentator. Um, That's because we we caught it ahead of time, people reacted to it, uh, unlike Grey Owl, who no one knew until he had already passed away. But interestingly enough, it wasn't just Joseph Boyden who actually engaged in this. His own uncle, Earl Boyden, is reported to have appropriated Native identity as Injun Joe, but this was for his own personal profit by selling goods to tourists while wearing a headdress. And here's the thing, it's not just Native people who are the ones to suffer from identity appropriation. In the United States, there's a woman named Rachel Dolezal, who is an example of a white woman who posed as a black woman for many years and occupied the voices and spaces of black people in the United States. She even acted as the spokesperson for the National Association of the Advancement of Colored People. Now, once she was... um, ousted or outed by her own parents and friends and family members, Dolezal tried to justify all these years of lies and deceit by claiming that she is something called trans-black or transracial. It's this really insidious concept that a white person can simply choose to be another race or ethnicity of people 
at their own choice. But to me, this is a really problematic proposition because it purports to empower those who are already entitled with white privilege the additional power to usurp the identities, experiences, and rights of other people, like black people or native people, to speak for themselves. Now, part of the problem is that the current political sensitivities around identity in general and the disproportionate focus on the so-called right to self-identify versus any responsibility to the claimed community has created a space for abuse by opportunistic individuals. And in fact, I think it's the discussions around reconciliation that have uh, contributed to creating this space, at least here in Canada. Because you see online in social media and in general conversation that anyone who questions a suspicious person's identity is accused of lateral violence or having a colonized mind and the conversation gets shut down. Yet, if you think about it, in order to come into Canada, you have to prove your nationality. In order to access provincial health benefits, you have to prove your identity as a provincial resident. In order to qualify for a wide variety of targeted programs, you have to approve your identity to those entitlements. However, reconciliation has gone way too far and has prohibited any discussion about the sovereignty and jurisdiction of First Nations over our own individual, familial, communal, ceremonial, cultural, and nation-based identities. I mean, we'll recall Justin Bieber who claims that he can get free gas in Canada because he's part Inuit. I mean, that's laughable for us, but there are people making these claims on different levels all over Canada. And the Métis Nation appeared to be a, an especially pronounced target of all of these new fraudsters, uh, especially since the Powley case. I mean, Literally, nowhere is this phenomenon of appropriated identities more pronounced than in the new wave of white settler appropriation that's been exposed by St. Mary's University professor Daryl LaRue. Now, LaRue's research um, has come up with what he refers to as like a proliferation of French white settlers claiming Métis identity based on uh, alleged Indigenous ancestors that lived 400 years ago. They're not connected to anyone who's living, just an alleged Native ancestor that lived 400 years ago. And some of them aren't even Native ancestors. But the rise in the number of people that are claiming a Métis identity from Quebec eastward to the Maritimes seems to coincide with the Supreme Court of Canada decision in Powley in 2003, which upheld the Métis right to hunt moose. But what most people don't remember is that the Supreme Court specifically clarified that opportunistic claims by individuals will not suffice for Section 35 rights. In fact, they said this self-identification should not be of recent vintage while an individual's self-identification need not be static or monolithic, claims that are belatedly made in order to benefit from a Section 35 right will not satisfy the self-identification requirement. But despite this clear direction, 
claims to Métis identity have nevertheless skyrocketed and hundreds of Métis organizations literally appeared overnight. And what LaRue has exposed is the really insidious nature of this movement by some of the more prominent groups that represent French settlers claiming Métis identity. He uncovered this evidence through online forums, through um, ancestral or genealogical documents and through court documents. So it's all very much documented through his research. And he uncovered, er, uncovered additional evidence that many of these groups have ties to white supremacist groups that strategically use their appropriated Métis identity to advocate for white rights as opposed to the rights of real Native people. Some of them were, in fact, members of white rights organizations that literally flip-flopped and became Métis organizations for the exact same purpose. And this is a very real threat. This isn't just a supposition or a suspicion. This is validated in the research and it's playing out right now. And it's why we need to have a really hard conversation about the reconciliation path we are on. Because where we're headed is a path where most people avoid these hard conversations um, about these difficult issues and focuses more on everyone getting along. But since contact, our identities as Native peoples have been oppressed and our rights have been you know, denied. And as First Nations you know, continue their nation-building efforts and local Native communities work on revitalizing their languages, cultures, and identities, it's important to make space for those trying to reconnect with families, communities, and cultures. I mean, there's no denying that colonial laws and policies, such as the Indian Act, which is still in existence, continues to divide individuals, families, communities, and nations from one another on inappropriate and racist grounds. And we as Native peoples, we have... Um, we are working to identify the many ways in which our cousins and grandkids and other relations have been excluded, discriminated against, or otherwise disconnected from our nations through no fault of their own, like residential schools, the Indian Act, 60s Scoop, uh, foster care, prisons, all of these things, and find ways to welcome them back. But the growing trend in fraudulent identities makes our journey to welcome back our rightful heirs all the more difficult. The other thing is that this new wave of dispossession is something completely different from our reunification work. But these fraudsters jump on our struggle, claim it as theirs, in order to insulate themselves from legitimate scrutiny. That makes our job a lot harder, but it also makes it a lot harder to identify these fraudsters. So French settlers and indeed other uh, white settlers will quickly be able to undermine our native efforts to reassert our identities and rights if we allow reconciliation to become the shield under which white supremacists can hide. To my mind, I think we should confront this threat head-on despite the inevitable claims of lateral violence, colonial mentality, or unsafe space that every time someone raises questions about appropriate identities is faced with.
because these efforts at revitalization that we are going through revitalization and resurgence and and you know uh, bringing back our culture and identities these efforts are going to be sensitive enough without white supremacists and white rights groups using that as a political opportunity to appropriate their identities disentitle our people and insulate themselves from any kind of scrutiny to me real reconciliation is about having these hard discussions and protecting the integrity of our nations for future generations because our nations are still recovering from decades of genocidal policies our identities are too precious to let them fall victim to white settler colonization we have literally fought against all odds to protect our identities, languages, and cultures to allow these opportunistic fraudsters to use reconciliation as their shield to dispossess us of our own identities. For us, we have to be honest, direct, and willing to engage and be vigilant about protecting one another. And we also have to be thankful and acknowledge all of our warrior ancestors who came before us, who gave their lives to protect our cultures and identities and to make sure that our nations existed in the future for our future generations, which are now us. So I hope you will think about this issue and join me for future conversations on my podcast, my YouTube channel, and my blog and find ways to work together to combat this appropriation. Thank you all for tuning into my show. This episode was based on an article I published for Canadian Dimension Magazine, and I'll post a link to it in my show notes. I'll also post a link to some of Daryl LaRue's work, which explains the white settler issue in more detail. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it by subscribing, liking, and sharing each episode. I'm currently hosted on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Well, all it.